0: So well, this morning we come to Psalm 2, continuing in this uh, series it's going to hit some of the highlights of, of the Psalms as we go through that book. Psalm 1 uh, and 2 form uh, kind of the, the introduction, the prologue to the Psalms, and uh, we'll kind of wrap up this little intro along with Psalm 25 this morning. Psalm 2 is 12 verses, let me read it for us. Again, the very word of the living God. Why do the nations rage, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart, and cast away their cords from us. So ends the reading of God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. As we come before it, let me lead us briefly in prayer. Our Father, and our God, we come before your word this morning and ask that you would bless this time, and that you would speak to us, and that you would fulfill the promise that you have made, that your word goes out and does not return to you void, instead accomplishing what you purpose for it and being successful in the things for which you send it. For us this morning, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us to open our ears and to open our eyes to hear and to see the things that you have for us this morning. And in so doing, that you would make your word a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And empower us by your Spirit to walk according to what it teaches us. All of this, once again, we ask in the precious name of of our Lord and Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, again, this theme that I brought up time and time again over the years, Psalms 1 and 2 tell us, Psalm 1, there's two kinds of people in the world, the righteous and the wicked. And Psalm 2 tells us, the righteous and the wicked are at war. The wicked rebel against God, but are defeated. They rebel in vain defeated by his son, set on Zion, his holy hill. These two psalms describe the world that we live in and its outcome. How things end in the end. And so these two psalms are a very fitting prologue, a very fitting introduction to the rest of the psalms, the whole book itself. <clears throat> There's another hint that the two psalms go together. They begin and end By talking about the one who is blessed. (coughs) Psalm 1 verse 1. (coughs) Blessed is the man. (coughs) Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Stands in the way of the sinners. Sits in the seat of scoffers. (coughs) Instead his delight is the law of the Lord. Which he meditates upon. Day and night. (coughs) And then Psalm 2, uh, 2 verse 12. Ends with a very simple but profound statement. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. You want to know what it's like to be blessed? (laughs) These two psalms tell you. The one that delights in the Lord, in His law, the one who takes refuge in Him. Look for His safety, His protection from the rebels who do rise up against him. We've talked about it already this morning. If anyone doubts that there's warfare going on, we had a stark, terrible example up in Roseburg, Oregon this week. There's some conflicting reports, but most seem to affirm that the killer wanted people to self-identify as believers. For those who did, shot him in the head. For those who didn't shot him in some other part of the body. Some say he did this for Christians only. some he did it for, say he did it for anybody who confessed faith in, in a God. But either way, this man is a rebel. He appears to have been an atheist and perhaps even a Satanist, <coughs> a man who hates God or who hated God and all those who identify with him. And Roseburg, Oregon is not the only example. We've had examples after example after example after example around the world of Christians being targeted, whether it's Nigeria or the Sudan or Egypt or Syria or Iraq or even China and India and Pakistan and Turkey and countless places around the world. Christians singled out for cold blooded murder. And if those events reflect the reality around us, what do we say about that ending in verse 12? Blessed are all who take refuge in him. What can we say about that? Get killed? That's refuge. Here's another example of where the Psalms force us to stop and think about what they say. How can this be true? How can this be real? Teenaged girls in the hospital fighting for their health. Maybe even for their life. How is there blessing for those who take refuge in God? How can that be true? Well, it is. (laughs) And that's one of the things we get to examine and learn and rejoice in, hopefully, this morning. What I want to do in going through this psalm is examine the conflict that's going on by looking at the various players, the speakers, if you will, in the psalm. There's four of them. And then see a couple things, just real general but I think helpful things for what the psalm means for us. Quick intro to the psalm. It it doesn't have a header like many of the psalms. It doesn't tell us who wrote it or what the occasion was. And so people who comment on it have speculated, why is this psalm uh, given to us? What was it written for? (coughs) Many assume it was written for the coronation celebration of a king, which kind of, makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of language in here that would be fitting for when a new king is enthroned in Jerusalem. The kinds of things you might say about a a king of God's people here on earth. Some see it more specifically as a psalm written in commemoration of when David captured Jerusalem. We have that language of God setting his king on his holy hill that would fit David <coughs> putting his throne in Jerusalem on God's holy hill others seeing it as a further a- application of to David of God's promise to Abraham here is the promise being fulfilled verses 7 to 9 <coughs> in particular 8 Where the nations are made his heritage, his inheritance, and the ends of the earth his possession. Now we have a king, now this is going to happen. I think those are valid thoughts, worthy of uh, careful consideration. I think also this is a psalm that would fit very well to be sung during a battle. Remember last week we read about David and Goliath and how the two armies of the Philistines and the Israelites were lined up on opposing hills with a valley in between. And they taunted each other back and forth, shouting across the valley. A very common thing that people did in those kinds of battles uh, in those days, it's in fact, something that went on for <coughs> excuse me hundreds of years, taunting back and forth, (coughs) singing songs of challenge to one another. We don't do that today. We don't line up in shield walls and face one another across (coughs) across valleys or plains. And so I think the echo we have of this today is, uh, take a college fight song, for example, or the songs that enthusiastic soccer fans sing around the world. The song that celebrates who we are and taunts the enemy. Whatever the case, one thing we do know about this psalm for sure (coughs) is that it's messianic. It points to God's Messiah, the promised king, the promised son of David. (coughs) We can see Jesus clearly from our vantage point, the apostles did, (coughs) in the New Testament. Acts 4 verses 24 to 27 where the conflict Peter and John had with the leaders of the Sanhedrin was interpreted as being about this very psalm the nations, the peoples rising up in vain against the Lord. <clears throat> Hebrews 1 5 and Hebrews 5 5 applies this psalm explicitly to Christ and quotes from it. <clears throat> I think we have allusions to this psalm in Jesus' baptism and his transfiguration. This is my son. And many echoes of it in Revelation, in the battle that is depicted there. In fact, in Revelation we have these vivid images of the long conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, which is really also being captured in this psalm in a very specific way. So fundamentally, this psalm is about conflict, Rebellion against God and his Messiah, the King, God's Son. There are four characters, four speakers in the psalm, and I want to look at each. There's kind of a narrator type of character. I want to look at that last, because that's also kind of a stand-in for us. There are the rebels, peoples, nations, kings of the earth, the rulers of the earth. They form one voice, one character. There's God himself who speaks. And then God's Son who speaks, mostly quoting God. But it is him speaking. (coughs) So let's take those in turn. The narrator tells us about the rebels, and the rebels speak (coughs) in verses 1 and 2. Note that this includes not just the rulers... <clears throat> Not just the kings, but also their people. The nations, the peoples, themselves. They're described as raging against the Lord and against His anointed. They've set themselves against God. <clears throat> They've taken counsel together. They're plotting. They're scheming. And their goal is stated very, very clearly. They blunt, they, they bluntly say it. They, they burst out. We're going to Break the bonds of God. We're going to cast away the cords that bind us. That's their beef. <clears throat> That's their complaint. They see God's sovereignty. They see his control. They see the power of God, the might of God, and they hate it. They can't stand it. They want it gone. They went out. They want their own way. They want freedom from God. They want to rule themselves. Really, they want to be their own gods. So here we are back again in the garden. Rebel against God. Disobey Him. And you shall be gods yourself. It's the cry of every rebel. It's the cry of every false religion our own God, every atheist who denies God to be his own God, every agnostic, every person who has said there is no God or God is dead, is a part of this rebel army. So they've lined themselves up on that opposite hill and are shouting across the valley that they're strong enough, they're smart enough, they're self-sufficient enough to cast off the sovereign rule of God in their lives. They're fools. (laughs) They're fools. They're dangerous fools because they're plotters and schemers and they're violent warriors who will stop at nothing in their desire to dethrone God. Well, how does God respond? God speaks in verses 3 to 5. I'm sorry. 4 to 6. I got my numbers wrong here. Verse 4. How does he react? He laughs. He laughs. This is crazy. This is hilarious. He mocks them. He makes fun of them. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? You're going to cast off my sovereign rule? But it's not happy laughter. It's not sharing a joke in in good fun. This is mocking. Because it's not a joke. Rebellion against God is serious. And it stirs up his anger and justly so. Because, as creator and as God, he has every right to rule and to reign. And so, out of God's wrath, he responds. And his response, we're told, is terrifying to these rebels. As for me, he says in verse 6, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Why is that so terrifying? Well, it's because the rebels want to rule themselves. They want to set up their own king. They want autonomy. And God is saying, in effect, no, I've got a king, and I've set him up, and really he's the one you're supposed to obey. The one king to rule over you. He's not Pharaoh. He's not the ruler of the mighty Hittites or the Akkadians or the Babylonians or any of the other great kingdoms of that time. Historically, it's David and his sons. God's continual protection of them and giving them victory after victory is a sign of his sovereignty and his rule. Here this tiny nation continues to defeat greater foes time and time again. There's a message there to these (coughs) excuse me, foreign kings and rulers and nations. If you had any brains, you would submit to David and his sons. You would bow to the house of David because I'm with them and I'm not with you. Of course, there's greater application beyond this, the hoped for anointed one against whom these people rebel. The Hebrew word for anointed, or anointing, being just Messiah or, or Mashiach. The Old Testament rabbis saw this, and we see it very clearly. David and his sons never achieved anything sort, anything close to a sort of worldwide rule. The kings did not submit to them. So the Old Testament looks forward with anticipation to this coming Messiah who will establish His throne and rule the kingdoms of the earth. Of course, we know the reality of that. More on that again in a little bit. Well, that Son, the Anointed One, speaks, verses 7 to 9. Let me tell you about God's decree. Let me tell you about what He's done. Let me tell you about what he says about this situation and this king that he has set up. I'm that king, so let me tell you what he told me for all the world to hear. You're my son. Today I have begotten you. Today I have done this. It's a present thing. Even though it's waited for in the future, that that gives it a sense of eternality. It's done, even though it's not yet consummated. Ask me, says God, and I will give you the nations as your heritage, your inheritance. The ends of the earth will be yours. <coughs> Think about the temptation that we saw when we went through Luke. <coughs> Satan saying, bow to me and worship me, and I'll give you all these nations to rule over. How, how foolish was that? The Son already had that promise from the Father. Eternally. They're yours. You'll break them with a rod of iron. Your rule will be sure and firm and secure. They will be dashed in pieces like like a potter's vessel, like like a vessel of clay. Clay appears strong and it does a lot of good things, but in reality it's very brittle one good swing, and you bust it in pieces. So the Messiah, the anointed one, claims that rule, claims that kingship, and claims it over all the earth. You think you can rebel, but I will break you. And so the narrator returns in verses 10 to 12, set up the situation in verses 1 and 2, but now he gives warning attached with a little bit of hope as well be wise you kings be warned you rulers of the earth and by extension all those peoples and nations that have risen up with them pay attention i'm about to lay down a warning flavored with advice here it is serve the lord with fear rejoice with trembling Kiss this son who has just spoken. In other words, submit to him. Bow down, kiss his feet, acknowledge his rule. Or else he will be angry and you will perish in the way. In the way. That's just a, a phrase for living. When it says that David went in and out before the people, it, that's a way of saying he lived openly in front of the people. We talked about the way of the sinners in Psalm 1. You'll perish in your way of living. You'll perish in what you've chosen to do, your rebellion. His wrath is quickly kindled. So time is short. Don't be a fool. Don't mess this up. Serve the Lord now while you can and rejoice that you can do so. You've got reason to fear and tremble because His wrath is quick And if you do not submit, he will kill you. You will perish. But, but, there's hope. There's hope beyond mere servitude, even. It's that last line of the psalm. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's a subtle but real offer. Give up your rebellion and take refuge in God and His anointed. In other words, switch sides. Join the Lord's side. Come under His protection. Come under His care. Blessing will be yours. Life will be yours. Those who rebel get death. Therefore, those who are blessed must by implication get life. There's the psalm. Four characters, four speakers, rebellion against God. (laughs) God's mocking derision of that rebellion and celebration of his own son, his own king. So what do we take from this psalm? And how do we fit into it? What are some lessons we can learn? I want to focus on two primary lessons. There are so many, but two to focus on this morning. The first has to do with the reality and identity of that Messiah, that son, the anointed one. And the second has to do with our part in this spiritual conflict, this spiritual war. So the psalm claims that God has set a son, his own son, his begotten son, on Zion to rule and to reign, to conquer the nations to the ends of the earth. And if God has claimed this in the psalm, then we have an obligation To figure out who that is. Who is this son? (coughs) Who is this person? Where is he? Well, again, the Old Testament saints look forward to this king in great expectation, in great hope. God promised us this king. He's delivered on his promises in the past. We know he will in the future. This king is coming. This king is coming. God will deliver on his promises. And what we know is that He did. Already referred to Jesus' baptism and transfiguration, where God's voice speaks from heaven and is heard to declare, This is my Son. Listen to Him. I'm pleased with Him. Jesus is that Son. But, Jesus never sat on a throne in Jerusalem. It doesn't say that God set him on a throne. I have set my king, it says, in verse 6, on Zion, my holy hill. He was set on Zion. He was set on that holy hill. But it was on a cross, outside the city gates, to be a curse on our behalf, that we might be righteous in Him. To be that atoning sacrifice that pays for our sins. To propitiate, to turn away that wrath of God that comes so quickly against us for our sinful rebellion. And so now through Him, and the psalm anticipates this, through Him there's blessing for all who take refuge in Him. Accept that sacrifice. Repent and turn away from sin and look in faith to God in Christ. Trusting that he has forgiven our sins and pardoned us of our rebellion against him. Because God has had mercy on us rebels and we were all rebels at one time or another. The wonder of the gospel is that God loved us and died for us while we were still his enemies. And now he calls us his friends. So yes, blessed is every single person. Who gives up the rebellion. Lays down their weapons. And instead takes refuge. In God. Do this. And live. Otherwise you will experience his wrath. For he is conquering the nations. And he will punish enemies. So what does that mean for us? Well, we're kind of like the narrator. We're observing this. We see what's going on. And I think like the narrator, our job is to do two things. Warn and give hope. We warn and we offer refuge. Sounds simple, and yet it's incredibly perilous, incredibly dangerous. Think of it this way. We have people in the congregation who have served in the military, who do serve. <clears throat> Imagine an army whose tactics never include attacking, never attacks, only defends. The enemy is always attacking, lobbing bombs, lobbing rocks, pick your era, it doesn't matter. They're the ones attacking, they're the ones driving, they inflict wounds, they even kill. But this army only defends. If it has to kill to defend, it will, but it never attacks, never once attacks, it only defends. And the way it tries to win is it sends people out into that opposing army and says, hey, want to join our side? You want to come be bombarded with us? You want to come be wounded with us and potentially die with us? How about it? Does that sound ridiculous? God uses foolish things to humble the wise. What kind of army fights that way? God's army does. Christ's army Fights that way. This is how he takes territory, such that the nations do become his inheritance and the ends of the earth his possession. Think of it another way. Maybe this is a little bit of an an easier way to think of this. Two football teams. I'll use the local favorites USC and UCLA. Here it is, the big game at the end of the season. The bands, the fans, the TV, they're both in their home uniforms. It's the tradition. It's everything. And the two teams go out to the middle of the field. The captains, they do the coin flip. And as they're walking back, the USC team, as they're walking back to the sideline, sees one of the UCLA captains walking back with him. What, What are you doing? Well, I want to join your side. All right. SC offense goes out onto the field, run a series of plays, they're done, they're walking off the field, and a couple UCLA defenders are walking off with them. What are you guys doing? Uh, we want to join your side. We want to we be on the USC team. Now imagine that happening series after series after series over the course of a football game. Who wins? The one with the most players. <laughs> now it might seem crazy to sit back and let the enemy attack and not attack back. But that's what we're called to do over and over again in scripture. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for them. Bless them. Do not curse them. Love your enemies. Love your neighbor. Be humble. Submit. Submit. Turn the other cheek. Give them a cloak. But see, by the power of the Spirit, we don't go out with just a a crazy message to come join the losing side. We go with the power of the Spirit who speaks into their hearts and says, you know what, you're a rebel. And you're going to die if you don't change sides. But if you, if you repent, if you come and kiss the king, you'll live. It's going to be hard. There's going to be wounded. There's going to be casualties. But in the end, we win. You may die, but there is life. We may be counted as sheep to be slaughtered, as Paul says in Romans 8. But nevertheless, we're not just conquerors, says Paul. We are more than conquerors in Christ. Why? Because he was killed and he rose from the grave. Which means that everyone who's killed, who's in his army, to use that analogy, lives again. And the nations are conquered. The world and its utter ends become its inheritance. So that's our command from our king. Go, make disciples. Teach them what I commanded you. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Go, he says, beginning here in Jerusalem, in Judea. Go to Samaria. Go to the ends of the earth. and make disciples. <clears throat> Go warn people, if they don't join my side, take my refuge, they will experience my wrath <clears throat> and suffer death for eternity. But if they join my side through repentance and faith, I will give them refuge. I will give them eternal life. won't come right away won't necessarily experience that blessedness in this life, in this world. Our King has even promised us there will be trials, trouble, persecution, even death. He tells us, I experienced it when I was here. The nations hate me, and so they will hate you. You'll be mocked and scorned and ridiculed. You'll be wounded, and some of you will even be killed just like I was. But new life, eternal life, awaits all who put their hope and trust and faith in me. So that's our role, a crazy role from the world's point of view, not to attack, to defend, and to conquer not with weapons, but with our witness, the warning we bring and the offer of the good news of the gospel. In other words, we conquer by conversion. And we all have different roles. Some of us feed the army. Some of us clothe the army. Some of us give them a home to live in. Some of us build walls of defense. Some of us actively participate in the defense. You who like apologetics. The defense of the faith. Some of us are those who go into enemy territory and make crazy offers to rebels but we do it by the power of the Spirit. And in the end, we conquer through Christ, willing to be sacrificed and be counted as sheep to be slaughtered, because in the end, we conquer and live. So to the rebels, this psalm is a warning. This is a battle that you are going to lose. From time to time, it may seem that you have the upper hand, but Jesus is enthroned and is coming to complete his conquest join with him or die <clears throat> and the psalm has a message to former rebels who can now take comfort this is a battle you will win in Christ <clears throat> and while we may seem to be on the defensive and subject to pain and sorrow and persecution Again, our King rules, and He rules now. And He is coming with healing in His wings and eternal life in His kingdom. So be blessed and take refuge in Him. Let's pray. <clears throat> our God and our Father, we do give you thanks For your son, the king that you set upon Zion, and the king who is returning, who now rules and reigns at your right hand, we pray that you would be with us and guide us, comfort us as we fight a, a very asymmetrical battle, to use a modern term. Be with us as we go, (coughs) and warn others, but also offer them the good news of hope (coughs) in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not our strength, it is not our wisdom, it is not our wit, it is not our eloquence, (coughs) it is not anything in us that convinces them, (coughs) but it is the power of the Spirit that causes their rebel hearts to turn. And we would be pleased to be used as your instruments to accomplish this. Comfort us, be with us, as we struggle through (coughs) the ups and downs of this life, especially when blessing (coughs) doesn't seem very apparent to us. We know that victory comes. and We look forward to that day. Father, may it come quickly. May Christ come quickly. We ask it in His holy and precious name. Amen.